0: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we're at Grand Colombier.
1: Ian, we are reacting somewhat on the hoof to today's Tour de France stage because about an hour ago we thought we'd won the tour de france such with our logistics we were parked at the team buses we finished our work we knew that our hotel was about 10 or 11 kilometers away straight down the main road we got here in good time but we've uh, had some trouble checking in i think madame and monsieur are slightly overwhelmed by the tour de france descending on this hotel we're on the kind of the evacuation route where all the team buses went past us about an hour ago I think we feel a little bit like Jonas Vingegaard might be feeling this evening <laughs> this is our stage 13 Tour de France episode my name is Lionel Burney, and again I'm joined by Ian Boswell former world tour professional of course podcaster as well Breakfast with Boz is Ian's podcast if you want to check that out after the Tour de France of course once you've listened to all the cycling podcasts output from the tour but Ian what a stage it really wasn't. And kind of, I mean,
2: Wiengagel must feel like I felt trying to order these beers. Two minutes plus two minutes plus two minutes adds up to me waiting for an hour to get two beers. And then they ran out of glasses, so we only have a, a small one. But we're finally kind of back in, in the high mountains. Uh, wasn't here for the first week. And what a stage it was. Just one classified climb, but
1: it was an exciting one. A heck of a climb. And, well, it was all about the final 400 meters, wasn't it? So let's hear the details.
0: It's time for the tale of the attack.
1: It was short and explosive, wasn't it? 137.6 kilometres from chatillon sur chalaronne to Grand-Colombier. As you say, and it was the climb at the end that everybody was waiting for. Baking hot again today, wasn't it? And we speculated yesterday about who might make it into the break. They wouldn't let the stellar climbers in, just in case. But... There were some good climbing talent in that breakaway. Well, the stage winner was Mikhail Kwiatkowski of Team Ineos. But before that, uh, the breakaway got into the bottom of the climb with about a four-minute advantage. And, I mean, I was pretty off the mark last night saying that they might need ten minutes to make it all the way to the top. You actually said four minutes will be touch and go, perhaps, and four minutes was enough because on the climb it was Bastille Day, of course, today, and the French rider from Groupama FTJ, Quentin Pacher, was the first to go clear on the climb, so he had the lead of the Tour de France on Bastille Day, delighting the French, behind Maxime Van Heels of Lotto Destiny, James Shaw of EF Education, and Harold Tejada of Astana, uh, bridged up to him and then dropped Pacher. and then, before we knew it, really, Mikhail Kwiatkowski made his move, A top quality climber, very dangerous presence in that breakaway group and I mean there were some cracking riders in there from the start, Kaspar Askreen, Matej Mohoric Fred Wright, Jasper Sterven, Georg Zimmerman again Ugo Uhl, stage winner last year of course, but once Kwiatkowski was away, he really had it sewn up very early on and then we could transfer our eyes to the GC race behind. And what an uneven race it was because UAE Team Emirates had numbers in front of Tadej Pogacar as Jumbo Visma kind of melted away in front of our eyes. Long way to go on the climb. And the yellow jersey, Jonas Vingergaard, had just Sepkus and Dylan Van Barlet for support. And then Van Baalet was dropped. So Jumbo Visma were significantly outnumbered. We'll talk about that in the next part. I was wondering whether Pogacar would go long or whether he'd wait. We were wondering whether the time bonus at the top of the climb would come into play. And really, Adam Yates of UAE threw in a bit of a curveball, making that acceleration with just over two kilometres to go, forcing Seth Kuss to react. We'll debate whether or not Kuss needed to react at that point and splitting the group down to really the biggest names in this Tour de France. And then with 400 metres to go, a very long, very powerful sprint by Tade Pogachar and he slowly cracked Jonas Fingerguard and but for Maxim Van Hills he'd have had a few more seconds in bonuses but Van Hills held on for second place, Pogachar over the line in third so he took four seconds on the road and four seconds in bonuses so Vingergaard now leads by only nine seconds and well what's it like racing in that rarefied company? Let's hear from EF Education's man of the day, James Shaw, remember he was in the break on the day to Cotere Cambasque and he finished sixth today after another brilliant ride in the mountains and I think he sums it up perfectly.
3: Yeah, they're different gravy as well, aren't they? As they you know, they're, they're, they're born different than boys. So for me, it's just uh, quite an interesting, interesting thought to, to see how far how far behind I am.
0: <laughs> the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science.
1: As their chief executive Stephen Moon explains, Science in Sport's sponsorship of the Tour de Lunsart is not one made for commercial reasons. They don't expect a great financial return or any financial return, but the aim is broader than that.
4: We initially sent off quite, quite a large quantity of nutrition and, and the race wasn't even in our minds right then. So we got some nutrition out cause we thought it would help people learn how to ride longer distances. And, um, we then started to understand the real challenge of uh, of the scene in Sierra Leone. You know the whole, cons the whole concepts of how you get things through customs and into the country. It-, it became apparent that not only was this riding community riding on bad roads with bad kit, but also getting any kind of material through through to them was not straightforward. So. Um, yeah, in our usual Science in Sport way, being stubborn, we then doubled down and committed to get more and more uh, nutrition and, and, and other bits of kit through to them. Um, and it was a while after we got involved in the race.
1: Wherever you ride, on or off road, in whichever part of the world, Science in Sport has got the energy products to keep you going. They have everything you need for before, during and after your ride. Go to scienceinsport.com. James Shaw in perfect Nottinghamshire there. Different gravy, them lads, aren't they? And, well, Pogacar once again opening the door on Jonas Vingegaard and will presumably tonight be full of confidence ahead of another two very difficult days in the mountains. And I just wonder what's going through Vingegaard's head tonight.
2: Yeah, I mean, even when we pulled into the hotel, the UAE bus came rolling by us, honking the horn. You know, they're, they're on cloud nine at the moment. I think this is really the perfect situation for them. You know, and, and and when you look at the dominance of their team today, you know, they put in a big effort, but they didn't have to tear up the whole client. And neither did Pogacher have to make an effort of, you know, a 5K attack where he's, you know, trying to get a bunch of time. He literally made an effort. Well, I mean, the whole climb's an effort, but for him, you know, it was 400 meters of him racing the final effort and, and taking that much time out and only be nine seconds behind. It's really a perfect situation. I mean, this is all he has to do. You know, he one stage win, and, and if Vinga goes outside of the time bonuses, he's got the yellow jersey on his back.
1: Yeah, and I suppose we make a lot of it, don't we, when the, uh, the deficit is so small, but the team doesn't have the pressure of supporting, defending the yellow jersey. They can very much let things happen around them but today they took it up and they had so many riders there didn't they uh michael bier led into the bottom of the climb he did a lot of work Uh, mark solaire i mean we had doubts about him as a team player when he was at movistar but he is absolutely dedicating himself to the cause here uh gross chartner did another incredible turn and then Rafael micah uh you know sort of podium grand tour podium style rider in his own right took over and then the Adam Yates attack. I mean, what did you think about that? It wasn't really necessary, but it really sort of put the cat among the pigeons. It meant that there was a kind of a tactical dimension to it as well as just the ferocious pace that UAE were laying on. Both Vingagal and Pogacar have kind of a wingman, you know, in Sep Kuss and in
2: and Yates. You know, when, when Yates attacked, I was a little bit curious as to why Sep went after him because I don't necessarily think that he needed to jump on it. And I think that was, you know, almost a disadvantage for, for Vingagol because those efforts are what favor Pugachar and what really hurt Vingagol. You know, he would prefer a longer, steadier climb and he's he's still in the G C, you know, I think he's in sixth place, but he's four plus minutes back. He's not gonna take out two minutes in the last, you know, two and a half K on, on Pugachar and Vingagol. So why did Sepp jump after that? I'm not really sure, and, and if anything, you know, I was thinking, okay, maybe if he gets a gap, then they want to close that right away, so Pogacar doesn't attack and have someone to jump across to, but I don't necessarily think it was necessary that, that Sepkus closed that gap.
1: Will Yumbo visma be concerned about how strong UAE looked today? I mean, everyone did a very, very good and long-term. No, there were no real weak links in the chain. I mean,
2: they looked incredible today. I mean, that was what I noticed the most in the press room, was just how prominent they were on the front, and you know... Sepp Kuss was there, you know, for the majority of the climb, but the last teammate outside of Sep was Van Barrel, who, you know, is, a, is an incredibly strong rider, but on a climb like today, he's not going to be putting any pressure on, on Pogacar. And, you know, Wilco went out the back pretty, pretty early, uh, Tish Benut, same, and they're not looking like the team that
1: they were last year or even earlier in this race. Let's hear a little bit from UAE Team Emirates manager Machin Fernandez talking at the finish today.
2: Well the plan is perfect in the moment of the remain five guys in my opinion with the 17 riders is this perfect after uh, before of the whole team continue the same plan is uh, change the, the idea, the, idea the, the, the pace with the other attack for a trade to the reaction of the bigger Garan made the course
1: perfect reaction for this is a uh, good and take the four-second and four-second bonus day by day. When a team's tails are up, everything goes to plan, doesn't it? He's saying there, that was the plan, taking it day by day, not getting carried away, you know, the Adam Yates move was was the plan, Pogacar going with 400 metres to go was the plan. I suppose if Pogacar had gone from a bit further out, he might have gained a bit more time, but again, that's one of those things that the rider can only weigh up the scenario, and... I just wonder the ferocity of the sprint, because from 400 metres to go, that is further than the bunch sprinters go from on the flat. I know the speeds are higher, but the power that that must have taken to go that far out, open the door slowly, realise that Vingegaard was losing ground, and then sort of go again, just to kind of finally just demoralise uh, the Dane and give him no chance of getting back on the wheel, knowing that seconds on the line, they tick by pretty quickly, don't they? I mean, before you know it, four seconds, and then the other four in bonuses.
2: They do, and, and you know, when you see Pogachar attack, he's so ferocious, you know, I mean, he went and, and Vingagal can hold it for a few seconds, you know, he, he's on the wheel, and this is what happened the other day, and it, the gap just slowly goes, and, and Pogacar, you know, he did it again today, there's a second kick that he does, and when he does that, Vingagal can't match it, and, and that's all, He, you know, he's not chasing minutes, you know, I made the comment to you earlier today that Outside of the Mary Blanc, he hasn't gained any time anywhere on, on Pogachar. Pogachar had one off day or, you know, wasn't wasn't feeling it. But since then, he's put time into Vingagol every day. And you made a comment that, you know, Vingagol was getting dropped and looked back. But what's he looking back for? You know, the, the race... He's following one rider, and the, the rider's in the white jersey ahead of you.
1: I think that's a real tell when a rider looks back when they're getting dropped to see whether somebody might be coming that they could maybe flick the elbow and say, look, can you just do a turn, give them that little second or two of recovery. But Vingegaard and Pogacar are so far ahead of the others that when one isolates the other, the, the second-place rider's really got no one else to turn to. They're on their own, and, and, and Vingegaard is leaking time alarmingly, little by little. And you do wonder whether this will lead to a, a kind of a, a definitive crack, and the next two days will answer that question. But you were at the Jumbo Visma bus. What was the mood like around the bus this evening? Because UAE was all smiles and everyone was, you know, looking pretty happy with themselves.
2: It was pretty somber. Yes, yeah, so and Ryan Zaman, the, the team principal, he came over and I was I was standing kind of between the Jumbo bus and the Enios bus. You know, he came over and congratulated Rod but then he just went into the corner and just kind of stood there and i think he was he was just thinking like what are we going to do you know what's i mean this is you know even more so than last year you know vingegaard the defending champion they came in this year more knowledgeable more experienced more prepared for you know how do we manage having the yellow jersey in the tour de france i think he kind of feels it all slipping through his fingers
1: it's funny isn't it when you look back to that first week and the way i think they thought they were going to crack Pogacar in two days, maybe take another minute and then it would be very, very difficult for the Slovenian to get back into it and it just hasn't worked out that way at all and and Pogacar's just looked like he's looking for those opportunities, waiting for those opportunities and in a way... The fact that he's not yet in the yellow jersey keeps that hunger, that freshness, that kind of excitement going for him. He's no—he's not going to be there going well now. I'm leading by nine seconds, and suddenly I'm the hunted. It's a really fascinating psychological battle, as much as anything.
2: It is, and I and I do kind of wonder if they're, if Jumbo Visma is wondering why they keep putting riders in breaks. I mean, Tishmanut was in the break yesterday. You know, Art was going for it. You know, on numerous occasions, and you know today wasn't necessarily a stage where. There's one there was one climb. That's it. You know, it wasn't like tomorrow. where We have multiple days in the mountains. And, you know, Vingegaard was isolated. And are they questioning maybe burning a bit too many matches with the team in previous stages versus riding for a singular goal?
1: Well, just behind those two, there's a little bit of shaking up on the GC. Jai Hindley is, well, he's further away from the yellow jersey, but he's actually further ahead of the riders behind him. A very good day for the Aussie on the Bora Hansgrohe team, and this is what he had to say at the finish. Well, how do you assess that today? Happy with your performance?
5: Yeah, it was a pretty, like, explosive stage, super short. Yeah, tough final climb. Uh, real punch at the end there happy to not lose so much time and also put time into uh the guys behind me on GC so
1: yeah we can see from the race for first and second it's a race of seconds at the moment you've got a really nice advantage and just to stretch that advantage even a little bit must be a big boost
5: yeah it's nice i mean if you can gain time uh wherever then it's always good and race is still still a long way to go but uh Yeah, take time where I can get it.
1: And lastly, what about that pace from UAE to Emirates? How is it hanging on to the back of that at the moment?
5: Pretty hard. All climbs now are just super fast. Uh, There's not so much uh, tactics involved, I would say. It's like you have the legs or you don't. And uh, that's that.
1: Well, I think we've kind of dug deep for a little bit of tactical sophistication in the UAE Team Emirates plan with the Adam Yates surprise move because they could just have kept it all together, kept the pace really high and and not upset the apple cart and then left Pogacar to do his thing. But Hindley they're making the point that it's not really a tactical battle when it's that fast. It's just about who's got the legs, who can keep the pace uh, long enough to stay in contention. Uh, I thought very impressive riding by Ineos Grenadiers, not just to to win the stage, but to keep both Carlos Rodriguez and Tom Pidcock well in contention. We'll focus on them in the next part. Payo Bilbao slipped down a couple of places today, lost some time, which means both the Yates brothers move up. And uh, Sepkus and Thibaut Pinot are playing some kind of party game with 10th place at the moment. Um <laughs> back into the top 10. Pinot has dropped down a bit. And that just shows the kind of madness of the Tour de France. All that effort yesterday by multiple teams to stop Pinot gaining time. And, uh, well, he's given a little bit back today. But uh, a real fascinating GC race developing here. And... I mean, this is as close to a sort of dead heat as you can get in the Tour de France with the penultimate weekend ahead of us and massive mountains to come. The Cycling Podcast is very proud to be supported by MAP. They made our brilliant Cycling Podcast jersey. And I asked a few days ago for listeners to send in pictures of themselves themselves yourselves wearing the cycling podcast map jersey out on the road and a good friend of the podcast and in fact a good friend of mine Laurent Aldebert who's a Frenchman but who lives in Watford not even not Watford actual Watford sent in a photo of himself riding on Literally, my home roads within a couple of kilometers of my house. It made me feel slightly homesick for the moment when I saw the picture, but nevertheless, uh, a very nice picture to see. Long, thank you for that. And well, we've been hearing from Maps Head of Design Harry Osborne about the design process, all of the work that goes into making a map jersey distinctive, not just in the way that it looks, but in the way that it performs.
5: On a practical level, I think that means you know finding the the perfect balance between. Creating a product that feels incredible to ride in, um, but equally pushes the sport forward, and you can see that through our, you know, our distinct use of colour. I think our evolving graphics, you know, the way we're bringing a fresh graphic language to the market, and also the way our products sort of, you know, fit on the body. So, we're really looking at things across um, a wide spectrum of design aspects. To. To bring a unique standpoint to the market and also looking at things through the lens of you know how we can how we can design products that support our customers life around the bike so whether that's through you know their road riding or their racing you know or whether they're adventuring you know further off the beaten track and even their you know their daily life in the urban environment so we're really trying to create a product range that can serve our customers across a wide spectrum of uh, cycling disciplines but rooted in performance
1: go to map.cc to check out the whole range of map clothing they've actually just launched a new range as well i'll perhaps talk a little bit more about that tomorrow but you can also get the cycling podcast jersey at map.cc Ineos Grenadiers won the day with Mikhail Kwiatkowski, his second Tour de France stage win in his career. The last one was in 2020 in the COVID tour when he and his teammate Richard Carapaz got away on a kind of lumpy stage. And the pair of them were a couple of minutes clear of everybody else. And they had this luxury situation of, well, do they does one gift the victory to the other or do they sprint it out? against each other and they sprinted out against each other and uh Kwiatkowski won on that occasion a classy rider isn't he I mean a a very dangerous climber to allow in a break like that today he he is dangerous he's also experienced I think when we you know where he made his
2: move today he wasn't in the initial three riders up the road with with James Shaw but he you know he rode it smart calculated you know he took his opportunity he hit him and he never looked back and you know he did have a big gap, you know, or the breakaway had a pretty big gap at the bottom of the climb. But by the end, it wasn't, you know, I'm sure he, you saw him looking back, wondering if the riders were coming from behind. Kwiatkowski's a great guy. I was teammates with him for a number of years, spoke to him the other day. And, you know, he's been, you know, hunting for a stage win here on multiple occasions already. For
1: him to get it here on a mountaintop finish, even more impressive. And especially when they've got two riders in the top 10. Uh, we were wondering yesterday what AG2R were doing chasing so hard when, uh, well, they weren't really making any inroads in the time gap. Uh, and we saw Ineos Grenadiers on the front as well, and they did take quite a bit of a chunk out of that time gap. This morning at the start, I asked their sports director, Steve Cummings, what they were actually doing, and what their plans are for Rodriguez and Pidcock as the big mountains loom. First of all, Steve, could you explain why the Ineos team were chasing so hard for that period of the race yesterday?
6: Um, The instruction (laughs) was to just regulate the gap on... uh... Pino, because the Pino is good. And when we asked them to do it, the gap was about four and a half minutes. And you're never sure in the breakaway, you know, if they accelerate to the finish. And also, uh, they started pulling, I think, 2k from the top of the climb. It, it give us. It's, it's always better to do the downhill as far forward as you can. We had the riders. We concentrated on them, trying to get as far up the GC as we can, and we don't want to give riders as good as Thibaut Pinot any advantage really. So we might as, well, might as well use the resources we have.
1: You've got two riders there in the top 10. They seem to be quite different characters, not just on the bike, but off the bike. Uh, what's the strategy now? Do you want to get both of them as high as possible in Paris or is one going to take precedent over the other? What's the thinking at this stage?
6: I think for the team, the team's objective is to get the, Yeah, we we prefer to have one on the podium than fourth and fifth, that's for sure. The challenge is, like, which one's stronger is really difficult. But what we can say at the moment is Carlos is a minute ahead. He's, you know, he's been um, top ten in the Vuelta last year. And in terms of his performances, there's probably less variability in his, his performances. So, yeah, but at the same time, Tom, you don't know where the ceiling is. They're both young. So it's quite a difficult um, decision. And maybe it's a decision that we we don't have to take it or just transpire on the road. But certainly we've given them a plan and some guidance today on, on, on how they should react if, if the riders in front of them or behind who are GC threats are dropped. For sure we have to take advantage. So that's what we've done.
1: What's it been like with Tom? Because he's such a flamboyant, natural racer. We see it in cyclocross mountain biking last year on the stage to Duez. I mean, he, he's not a rider that wants to be sitting tight and riding in this controlled kind of way. So what sort of conversations are you having with him about how to race the Tour de France for GC? Because it's a new thing for him.
6: Not really, really, because he's, he's intelligent guy as well. And um, you want to, you, want, you don't want to take that away from him. You want him to, you want him to be, ex, you want him to race his bike as his instincts and stuff like that. There's a little bit here of like um, biding his time on the GC, and he because he, he's so close as well, he hasn't got that that freedom to to go up the road. But yeah, he's always just trying to keep him alert and awake for the the moments where he could make the difference um, in certain scenarios. So we go through that daily just to to uh, plant the seed in his mind, really, what 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 could be possible in certain scenarios.
1: As a team. Would you be happy for him to sort of take a risk and bump his head on the glass ceiling and at least find out where that lies for him? Even if it meant losing places on GC, rather than riding just conservatively and finishing as high as possible, would you like to see him take a risk in the final week?
6: Yeah, I think let's get today out. Oh, today's quite straightforward in that, in that sense, you know, you, you arrive at the climb, but then after today we can reassess again. But yeah, of course you want to see him, um, you want to see, I, Who knows where he'll be today at the end of the day? We don't know. So first we do today and then we can analyse the situation and make a plan for coming. But that's what we need to do.
1: It's a really interesting conundrum, this, isn't it? Because as Steve says there, they would obviously prefer one rider on the podium and the other dropping out of contention overall than having fourth and fifth or fourth and seventh or whatever. And yet, on the other hand, if rumours are to be believed and Carlos Rodriguez is leaving to go to Movistar next season, you would expect... You know, Tom Pidcock is going to be at Ineos Grenadiers for a while. He is the future of the team as things stand. Uh, It would be interesting to see just what Pidcock could achieve. I mean, today, fifth on the stage, the next rider after Pogacar and Vingegaard, a really impressive ride. And he's putting together a very solid GC, uh, despite the fact that he's a a much more flamboyant rider than that, really. Just the, the sort of stayed steady careful, no-risk, GC-style racing is not really his DNA, is it? No, it's not.
2: I met up with Rod Ellenworth after the stage to speak about this and because I know that, you know, Pitcock's not a rider that tends to want to ride to the, you know, the typical and the traditional Team Sky strategy. So let's hear from Rod. Rod, Lionel was speaking to Steve this morning, kind of about what the team's tactic is as far as GC. I mean, there's no question that Ineos a bit in a transitional phase. But I guess what we saw today with for Pitcock and Carlos was that the team really rode like a kind of like old school team sky. You know, at the, coming into the base of the climb, the team was there. And obviously, you know, congrats on the win. But as far as, uh, you know, kind of developing the next GC rider, is that still very much a goal here?
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, for them two younger guys, that's, that's everything that we've wanted to do for them two. And I think, you know, Carlos is a bit of an easier one because he's on that sort of traditional Grand Tour You know long burn if you like you know Um, but Tom's very different I think with his you know he's got other objectives with the mountain biking I think he's just putting a toe in the water here at the tour and I think you know what we're seeing there for somebody who's just putting a toe in the water he's he's coming up with the goods at the at the minute and then yeah you know uh we today we wanted you know put somebody in the big break if it was a big break if it was a small break don't bother but then really concentrate on how we bring them lads into the bottom of the climb and also, we did a big thing on fuel, on uh, cooling. So, you know, that last 40K, massive amount of cooling so that they, you know, could really sort of um, just, um, you know, maintain that temperature. Uh, because holding that off was the key thing here today.
2: And Tom had an awesome ride today. I mean, he was up there with, with the best GC riders. Is it hard to convince him to ride GC? Because, I mean, he... He wants. He's a racer, you know. And I th- heard even after this, he's going to mountain bike worlds, not the road worlds. Is it hard to convince him to see that him make that transition, like like Wiggins and Garrett made?
7: Well, I think he's just. I think it's just quite different. That's the thing. And I, I you know, I've always believed you've got to follow riders' dreams and ambitions. And you know, if you if you try and cut them short in that that you, you don't get the best out of them. So I do believe what he's doing is right. He's doing everything well, and he wants to go for GC here. That's the thing at this race. You know, he wants to practice the GC. He's talked about doing all the, ba- the basics well, you know, the recovery after the stage, the, you know, everything, the fuel in, the, the cooling, the, everything really well. And it's part of that process, I think.
2: And do you know how many stage wins this is for the Sky Ineos organization?
7: I haven't got a clue, no. Do you have a guess? Uh, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't think we've won many stages, have we? I don't know, actually. In Grand Tours or in the Tour? Just in the Tour. Oh, do you want to have a clue? Ten maybe? I don't know. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Rob. How many is it? Do you know? I don't know. No, not, I haven't got a clue. No, no, not a clue. Well, we heard
2: there from Rod, and he kind of said just that, that Pidcock is here to ride GC, and he's testing out the process. You know, we've heard this so many times from Team Sky. You know, it's a process. It's, you know, there's a strategy, and it's probably not easy for him to ride a little bit more conservative and, you know, waiting, being patient, but if he wants to see what he's capable of doing at a Grand Tour and at the Tour de France, he has to try that now. And is he going to win this year's Tour? No. But is this a good indication of can he be a, you know, a podium contender this year and potentially a Grand Tour winner down the road? He'll find that out at this Tour.
1: Yeah, it's interesting watching Ineos Grenadiers. I mean, lots of people have made this point that they're in a transitional phase. Uh, quite a few of their sort of Grand Tour style support riders, or even, well, in the case of Theo Gagenhart, a Grand Tour winner in the Giro a few years ago, are leaving. Uh, we think Theo Gagenhart's going to Lidl Trek. Pavel Sivakov, we expect to move on somewhere else. So quite a changing of the guard there. And there's this real kind of strange situation at the moment where Vingegaard and Pogacar are on this sort of top shelf of Grand Tour talent. Remco Evenepoel, clearly a brilliant rider, won the Vuelta last year, may very well have gone close in the Giro this year before having to pull out with Covid. He's under lock and key at Quick Step, and there were lots of rumours that maybe Ineos would try and buy him out of the contract there and, and lure him across because as high as the level is there aren't very many riders that you can imagine challenging Vingegaard and Pogachar and so Ineos Grenadiers have got this strange conundrum at the moment haven't they what are they building towards they do but if you kind of look at these you know these superstars of this era Pidcock is
2: one of those riders and you know I know we don't always consider him you know a pure climber but you know, how can he kind of change his characteristics over the next couple of years if he decides, you know, like Garren Thomas, like Bradley Wiggins, you know, if I want to be a Grand Tour rider in, in you know, 2025, I want to win the Tour de France. I think he is capable of it. And I think a lot of, you know, I think time will also give him some maturity and he will maybe be less inclined to go for, you know, cyclocross worlds or the mountain bike world championships. He may you know come to a point in his career where he decides, you know what, the Tour de France is the biggest event in cycling. I'm going to solely focus on, on that event.
1: What do you reckon? I mean, Evenapool and uh, Ineos is probably not going to happen. Yeah, certainly not in the short term. I just have this feeling that in the Sky days when the team was owned by, effectively by Sky, they would have broken the bank. You know, Dave Brailsford would have gone out and got his man and Ineos isn't cut from quite the same cloth, it doesn't seem to me.
2: No, I, and we saw that today, you know, coming into the base of the climb, we saw two teams on the front. We saw UAE and we saw Team Ineos. You know, Jumbo wasn't, wasn't even there and... And, you know, as, as Steve said, you know, they're in a mindset now of, like, we need to develop our future Grand Tour winners. So we need our, you know, domestiques and our team to ride like we are holding the yellow jersey because you need to practice that. And, you know, we saw that with Wiggins in, in 2011, 2012, that there's a process you go through to be a Grand Tour team and a Grand Tour rider. So is Pidcock that guy? I think, they're, I think that's what they're banking on because there really aren't that many riders you can see going up against, you know, and Pogacar is young. You know, Vingo's a little bit older, but, I mean... Yeah, there's not many riders, and I don't see anything in the pipeline of of someone coming up to to really challenge the top tier of riders at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point about riding to the process. I mean, it sounds quite prosaic, quite boring, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, as Steve Cummings said, yesterday's plan was just to kind of hold that gap, not really take chunks out of it. But once they got on the front and they had the horsepower, they decided to use it. And as you say today, even though they had Kwiatkowski up the road in that break, who would have had his eyes on that stage win, they were lifting the pace to get rodriguez and pidcock into the bottom of the climb in a good position and quite smart riding really to be able to play those two cards come out with a stage win and preserve the overall positions of both rodriguez and pidcock they'll be very happy tonight yeah i think it
2: was and i think it's also a matter of putting a little bit of pressure on pidcock you know when he sees his teammates up there riding you know sacrificing you know their day for him because if he wants to be a grand tour rider that's what it's going to be and i don't know him that well but i assume if if he is a rider who's a little bit more spontaneous it's easy to flip that switch and be like you know I started the climb 30 riders back and not feeling great. But when he sees his team up there riding like that for him. Okay, I'm going to finish this off because he's, you know, he's clearly capable of
1: doing it. That's another very good point because cyclocross and mountain bike is real kind of individual cycling, isn't it? Whereas, Grand Tour riding is all about the team. Uh, So we'll watch how that evolves. Uh, You asked Rod how many Grand Tour stages the Team Sky Ineos Grenadiers squad have won over the years. They, of course, made their debut in 2010. I mean, he's miles off. (laughs) I mean, he should have a better grip on the numbers than this. But that would, I think. That was the 20th stage win by Team Sky Ineos. The very first was back in 2011. Edvald Hagen won two stages that year. They, of course, drew a complete blank in their debut tour in 2010 and went home with their tails between their legs a little bit. Uh, And over the years, the most successful tour 2012, when Mark Cavendish won three, Bradley Wiggins two and Chris Froome one. And uh, as I say, yeah, Kwiatkowski in 2020, Pidcock last year and Kwiatkowski again today. uh, yeah quite a collection of stage wins there and when i look at it it's interesting that you know chris froome won the tour all those years but apart from 2013 he wasn't like a, a massive stage winner you know there was even 2017 when he won the tour without winning a stage but uh, there we are a good day for Ineos grenadiers the other person that we were focusing on this morning at the start was jack haig of bahrain victorious because I mean, he is a diesel, isn't he? He has been racing since the start of the Giro. In fact, he did the Tour of the Alps before the Giro, just to get ready for the Giro. And I've calculated, and again, I might be one or two out here, but in the last 70 days, he has raced on 41 of those days. The whole Giro, a week off between the Giro and the Dauphiné, then three weeks off until the Tour de France. So he's doing the... Giro, Dauphiné, Tour de France, Treble. And, I mean, that's not something we see very many riders do at all these days.
2: No, it's not. I mean, remember when I was at Katusha speaking to to Eric Zobel and speaking about how many race he used to do a hundred plus race days a year, it was very common for riders to do a race multiple sometimes twice a week you know jump in a one day race do multiple grand tours but the more we see the evolution of sports science we see riders racing much less more altitude camps you know more training camps and less racing and and Jack has kind of really thrown that out the window and you know he'll finish this tour with I don't know if you calculated how many race days he'll have after this tour but i think it's six maybe 70 plus race
1: days yeah it's going to get up there isn't it and that's almost a season
2: it is a season and, and you know we're here you can't stop racing at the end of july because that's a long time to take off and to train until january when presumably he'd maybe do you know tour down under or the australian nationals so he has to you know his season's
1: by no means <laughs> over yet either Well, you spoke to him at the start this morning, so let's hear what he had to say about his uh, epic road trip, albeit a supported one. He's not bikepacking, is he?
2: No. (laughs) Well, Jack, you did the Giro, then you did the Dauphiné, and now you're here at the Tour. So, I mean, how are you holding up so far? You also forget
3: I did Tour of the Alps just before the Giro as well. So, I've had a pretty heavy race program. Yeah, I'm starting to feel it a little bit, I'm not going to lie. But... In general, it's gone maybe better than I expected. I kind of expected already in Dauphiné to not be super. And the first two days of Dauphiné, I felt like crap. And then it slowly kind of just got a bit better and better. And then the idea of coming to the Tour de France sort of came about after criterium Dauphiné. And I sort of said, ah, I got nothing really to lose. I sort of come here and I see how it goes. And we had Peo and Mikel for GC. And I sort of just wanted to try and look for the breakaways and have a... Good ride to help the two GC boys.
2: I mean, it's kind of an old school approach to cycling. I mean, when you look back in the day, you know, riders would do 120 race days a year. When you look at Tour of the Alps, Giro, A Tour, that's that's a whole season within the span of two months. Yeah, I think I'll finish
3: the Tour de France with 75 race days. And uh, I think now maybe the guys are doing like 65 to 70 for the whole season, let alone finishing with 75 at the, the middle of the season an old school approach and I feel as though I haven't really done any training since maybe before Tour of the Alps I did an altitude camp there and after that I barely trained like after Dauphiné I went on a holiday for a week with my family I rode the bike maybe two or three days in that week and then I went home I did one week of kind of training then I came to tour.
2: So would this be the end of your season or I mean Welta's not that far away you could skip some training
3: Yeah, a lot of people have been joking with me that Tour of Poland, Burgos and Welter, they're sort of lining up just perfectly and if I finish the tour going well, it could be an option. I kind of hope I can have a bit of a rest after the tour, but I think I need to keep racing. The team would probably like me to do San Sebastian, Germany, Canada, and then after that, maybe Lombardy, but I think we just need to wait and see until the end of the tour. (laughs)
2: And lastly, so many riders are putting so much emphasis on preparation for races now. We see GC riders race less than ever. Do you feel like it's affecting your performance? I mean, do you feel like you could still go for a stage here? I mean, we're kind of coming into your your territory here with the with the mountains looming. How do you feel that your approach is uh, different and would you, would you continue to do this in the future?
3: So I've got an interesting theory. I don't think coaching works and training works. I think by the time you get to let's say, the 10-man long list for the Tour de France in any team, you're such a genetic freak at that point that as long as you do the basic things right of training hard every now and then, resting every now and then, all the finer details and the way that coaching is done in professional cycling at the moment, I don't think the coaching makes the difference in the end. I think it's more like a bit genetics because, okay, you look at Tadej or Jonas, do you think they're better because they have better coaches or you think they're better just because they're genetic freaks?
2: I mean I think they're just better yeah I mean they could I could (laughs) I could coach Tade to Tour de France win probably but (laughs) no
3: it's kind of like sort of the the way that I feel after this kind of weird season now that doesn't seem to matter what I do but I'm kind of more or less at my level okay maybe I'm a tiny bit better I'm a tiny bit worse but it's a couple of percent we're talking here and maybe that couple of percent, yeah, is the difference from being top five or winning and being top ten. But if you're not the leader of the team, I feel as though was, that percent doesn't make too much of a difference.
1: A couple of other bits of business from today, Ian, because although it was a great day for Ineos Grenadiers, they did lose a rider, Ben Turner. We'll find out uh, what was up with him uh, tomorrow. We don't know at this moment. And Caleb Ewan as well. Lotto <laughs> Destiny lose their sprinter. Uh, All that talk a few days ago about how, you know, he might be coming better, looking for a stage win. He's he's obviously been uh, struggling over the last few days and he is out of the race. And the other thing that's pretty ominous for Nielsen Paulus is that today Pogacar has taken a bit of a chunk out of his lead in the King of the Mountains competition. And the way things are going, Pogacar is going to be hoovering up points. Uh, You can imagine him taking the king of the mountains jersey perhaps even before he gets a yellow jersey at this rate
2: yeah i spoke to tom Southern the other day outside the the team ef bus and he was saying i was asking him a bit about the the kom classification because i feel like it's one of those classifications that you don't really fully understand where the points are accumulated and he said that it's very well possible that whoever wins this classification could not even start at this they could have had zero points before yesterday's stage okay Pogachar's already accumulated points he'll continue to accumulate points. You know, we've seen this the last couple of years where oftentimes the winner of the Tour de France also wins the KOM jersey and in Pogachar's case, potentially wins the white jersey as well. With some big days coming up, it's going to be hard for, for Nielsen to hang on to that polka dot jersey.
1: Kilometre Zero at the 2023 Tour de France is available for friends of the podcast subscribers. There's an archive of more than 100 special episodes with new ones released throughout the year. And an annual subscription costs about the same as buying a cup of coffee a month. If you want to, you can pay more. For the first time, you can also sign up with a monthly subscription. So if you just want to see what it's all about, that might be the best option for you. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com and once you've subscribed, you'll get an email with instructions for how to add the feed to your favourite podcast app in just a few clicks. Support The Cycling Podcast by becoming a friend of the podcast.
0: L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner.
1: Really not too much to report from last night's dinner. It was fairly unfussy, wasn't it? We just had a pizza at a little restaurant by the side of the road there in Belleville en Beaujolais we didn't indulge in the very fine local wine we were feeling pretty tired after a long hot day and a late night the night before woke up this morning feeling that feeling absolutely fantastic after almost nine hours of well broken sleep admittedly by this stage of the tour you went off out on your bike as well this morning
2: I did yeah I mean I think we were both feeling the effects of our uh our nice dinner and Mitch's send off the other night and you know, you've been on the tour much longer than me, but, uh, once in a while, I think a night like that is very needed and, and you do feel a bit, you know, we're in wine country. We didn't have any wine. We didn't have a fancy. you know, Francois gave us a recommendation for a nice restaurant, which would have meant, you know, another midnight, 1am dinner and, and bed. But, um, in hindsight, very glad we took it easy and yeah, got to bed on time.
1: And we were in wine country but also cycling country because we were in the shadow of Montbrui which has been on the race route of the Paris-Nice a few times it was snowed off there i think in 2016 did you actually get up to the top of that?
2: I didn't. I actually rode around the circumference of it this morning. Oh. Um, but yes, I actually did see a Strava segment from 2016 paris where we came through there and I, I actually took a PR. So I was faster on my ride today than I was in the 2016 Paris-Nice. Wow. you're going better now
1: than when you were a pro <laughs> rider, Ian. Uh, what about tomorrow's stage? Because it's an absolute humdinger and, well, we expect fireworks, don't we?
2: Yeah, so I'm very familiar with this stage. I rode it just under a week ago at the Atap de Tour, it starts in Enmas and finishes in Morzine-Porte-au-Soleil. There are five categorized climbs. And I will say that the beginning section of this race, it starts with the Col de Saxel and then the Col de Cru and then the Col de Feu coming very quick. Not quick succession. They're not the hardest climbs, but there's not much valley road between them. So I expect to see a strong breakaway. The stage is 151.8 kilometers. After that uh, sequence of climbs, they hit the Col de Ramaz down in the valley and then the final climb of the day up to the Col de Plan before
1: descending into Morzine. It's going to be a great stage. I mean, I was trying to think of Tour de France's that have reached this stage of the race this finely poised. I mean, we remember the Contador-Schleck battle. Well, more than 10 years ago now, but there was always a sense that uh, one would have the upper hand over the other, and the other one you mentioned was Andy Schleck and Cadell Evans, but because Evans was a stronger time trialist, we always suspected that Evans would win that tour. I'm thinking back to 2008 when, I think on the second rest day, like 30 seconds separated the top five. I'll, I'll look that up and we'll talk about it in uh, tomorrow's episode maybe, but it was Sastra, Evans, Bernard, Cole, who was later disqualified, uh, Menchoff, Van der Velde, and one of the Schleck's—all really closely bunched together after two weeks of racing. But we've not seen a tour where two such evenly matched riders are so close together on GC at such a late stage in the race.
2: No, we haven't. And you know, the jersey hasn't changed hands, but the psychological battle and the momentum has, well, you know, been favoring been favoring Polgachar and you know another thing to mention on tomorrow's stage there is a time bonus at the top of the Plan tomorrow you know and that's I think it's eight six and four um and then I believe another time bonus down at, at the finish in Morzine so I mean this race is it's a nail-biter with the stages with stage tomorrow the stages we have this weekend or on Sunday we could see a completely different race come the next rest day.
1: Yeah, Guard has been losing time, a bit like he's been losing loose change down the back of the sofa. Another couple of euros gone today. We'll see what tomorrow brings. But uh, it's Bastille Day, which the French actually call just July the 14th. Uh, we call it Bastille Day. Uh, the French national holiday. And, well, our very dear friend, François Tomizot, has a Bastille Day tradition on the podcast. Before we hear from François, thank you very much, Ian. I'll see you tomorrow when we will be joined by Lizzie Banks, who, well, this is her home stage tomorrow because she lives not far from Anmas, and she, of course, is the EF Education Tibco SVB rider who has just finished the Giro Donna and she'll be joining us for our Tour de France coverage for a few days. But now, over to the maestro, François Thomasot.
0: Now, for some French flavor, with will be François Thomas. Well guys, it's been a tradition in the past uh, Tour de France that um, I sing La Marseillaise, the national anthem on Bastille Day on the podcast. So I realized it's been two years in succession that uh, Ineos Grenadiers win the Bastille Day stage. Last year was Tom Pitcock and this year is um, Michael Kwiatkowski. As I absolutely can't sing La Marseillaise in Polish, I have decided I'll I'll try to sing La Marseillaise in English, so it's a (laughs) it's kind of kind of of a clumsy translation of the words but that's that's the thing I found on uh, on the internet and so here we go for La Marseillaise in English, in English the Marseillaise. Come on children of the Fatherland, the day of glory has arrived Against us, tyrannies Bloody banner is raised Bloody banner is raised Can you hear in the countryside mooing Those ferocious soldiers They're coming right into our arms To cut the throats of our sons and our women To arm the citizens Form your battalions Let's march Let's march Let an impure blood Water our furrows Water our furrows Well on this since it's very very hot I suppose on the Tour de France I leave you guys to water your furrows and uh, Well, talk soon.
7: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney.